0: Hope you're hungry. The table is set.
1: Join us for another Cosmic Feast.
0: Welcome back to Episode 3, Season 2, Episode 3.
1: Third time's a charm, David.
0: Feast, I know. <laughs> Today's headlines include Helen and the Summer of 68 and the Really Groovy Super Cool Motor Machine, Timothy Leary's <laughs> Lost Tapes, The Legacy of Jesus Christ, Jim Carrey's The Riddler Was Not Wrong, and Jack's hmm. and Other Jacks, a story of alien Lord Farquaad and Mountain Fabio.
1: Lord Farquaad, like from Strike?
0: Yes, I'm calling this guy Little little Alien Lord Farqua. Um, it just paints- <laughs> Sounds it, like we
1: have like uh, an episode full of celebrity references. I'm excited.
0: <laughs> we do. A lot of references, a lot of good stories. This is a cool- We're doing this episode based on Messengers of Deception, famous book by Jack Vallee. We have covered uh, Passport to Magonia on our first episode- and now we're doing Messengers of Deception. I've been curious about this book for a long time. Jack Valley is an interesting one. He This book really reminds me, I, I have to say, this is the first Jack Veli book that I have personally read because I, I read Passport to Magonia or experienced it through you,
1: which is. <laughs> which is basically reading it.
0: Which is basically like reading.
1: It's like Spark Notes.
0: If you guys out there can find a buddy and have that buddy read you a book. Or give you the cliff notes, <laughs> like a like another being tells you the book, then that is pretty much better than reading. You're probably going to remember more from that than reading.
1: It's true because you're creating your own image in your mind. Like like it's taking me back to when I was a child and my parents would like read books to me, and it was just like, I mean, you know, as a kid, you have a vivid imagination to begin with. But it's like, oh, oh my I bet gosh, you did. the possibilities. My my mom read me um the Neverending Story at night. <laughs> And I don't think we actually finished that book, but that's because it never ends, right?
0: I guess so. That's probably what she told you. (laughs) She was like, it never ends. But mom, why are we always reading chapter two when there's chapter three? (laughs) Is the book better? Does the book hold up better than the movie? The NeverEnding Story?
1: So I got to be honest with you, this was a really long time ago. Um, This was before I saw the movie, and I also was, like, going to bed. So it was like, you know, my mom would read, like, a page and a half, and then I'd be snoring. So how much do you really remember... Other than I'm I, I remember like the general arc of the thing like how the boy was reading a book and then he got brought into the adventure like I remember that I'm not sure I remember details of like you know the characters that they met and if they saw the rock man and I I know the princess was in there she definitely yeah because mm-hmm, I was the princess I remember that but
0: wait there was Utreo <laughs> Utreyu. wasn't Utreu Utreu and don't <laughs> tell me Falcor Falcor was the dragon. <laughs>
1: I love how we're just we're just gonna stop this
0: episode this episode is all about the never-ending story um (laughs) you know what I I'm kind of scarred for life because I tried to re-watch that film senior year of college and I got some friends together we were really excited to watch it because it had been many years we thought it was going to be funny and fun that movie does not hold up at all the special effects are so bad and it's like oh come uh, on it's uh, well, I'm it. telling you, don't if you haven't seen it in a while, just don't let you let your child I own head. it
1: and i I feel like I show it to someone like every year or every other year.
0: I time. was actually a fan of the second movie anyway, we're gonna move on from the Ending story, but i I, I really was a huge fan of the second movie. <laughs>
1: I really was too.
0: Anyway, listen, we're we're covering <laughs> material here. Ja- th- here's the thing: Jack Vallee for me reminds me of John Keel so much in in a sense because for me they're both people who have researched this phenomenon so much. They've taken it from uh, you know, John Keel is a trained uh, journalist and incredible researcher. Jack Vallee is a scientist. And somebody who looks at the facts and the information and doesn't state his beliefs until he's kind of had time to study it. But they're both kind of – I don't know. I can't think of any other word but like Debbie Downers about the whole nuts and bolts aspect of the phenomenon. I don't think they were cynical. I don't want to say they were bitter, but I think cynical is the right word. Well, I think towards the end, definitely. But Jack Feli is still working on this stuff. but. I mean, Jack Foley. if you see his interview with Joe Rogan that he did recently, like he did seem a bit jaded. He wasn't really giving you much information. This is a man that knows so much about this phenomenon, but he refuses to really say anything other than he doesn't know what they are, and yet they exist. I think he's even in the process in Silicon Valley of getting people together to research the physical elements at this point and trying to determine the physical elements but this book is really interesting. I was thinking I was thinking when I was doing this I was like does he even remember his book? I'm like don't you think <laughs> authors like forget what they wrote about? Like it's not like all the information you write about is in your head at all times. It's not just like stored there.
1: At least not like several hundreds of pages of information. There's
0: I was you know I was communicating with 1979 Jack Valley and um right. And, but he's got a lot of insights in here that I think we need to hear. And just like John Keel, I think it's really important. I, I, I came to believe that perhaps one of the most important takeaways for this episode has to do with like, if you're out there, if you're out there listening to us and you have an experience with a UFO, you, you see an alien being, or you see an angel or you see something and it communicates with you. You can't buy into everything that you're seeing. You can't trust everything that you're seeing. You can't trust what they say completely. You have to have a healthy amount of skepticism because like we've said from the beginning, it's unclear if the UFO phenomenon, my metaphor initially was like, it's the laser pointer for the kitten that's chasing it around. Like we cannot assume no matter how angelic or beautiful or what the philosophy or the spirituality is behind the experience. We can't take that at face value. We don't know who's controlling the laser pointer. We don't know what's controlling the laser pointer. And I had some good ideas while I was covering this material. Our, our, our show is going to start Taking the form of like sort of topics and stories, uh, you know, this is based on messengers of deception, but it's not like a, it's not a summary of the novel in a way that what we were doing before. So, so there's definitely elements of the novel that we're not going to cover. Okay. So Jack's fell just to do a quick refresher. We do this at least once a season. We go over this man's life. <laughs> <laughs> Jacques Vallée, he's long been regarded as the most respected senior scientific investigator of uh, unidentified aerial phenomena. Um, this is actually a nice blurb that's on Amazon.
1: Thanks, Amazon.
0: He was the inspiration, as we talked about in our first episode, for the French scientist in Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Steven Spielberg's movie. He's worked all over the world in, in terms of the U.S. and French government projects, not about UFOs, like on different – projects having to do with computer science and business he studied mathematics in sorbonne how do you say that sorbonne it's the sorbonne sorbonne yes you guys know what we're talking about here (laughs) that french university that is super famous he received an ms in astrophysics at Lille university he worked at a Paris observatory. 1962, he worked as an astronomer at the University of Texas in Austin. Pretty interesting. He co-developed the first computer-based detailed map of Mars for NASA, which we've talked about in the past. Um, Northwestern, he gets a PhD. He was a close associate of Dr. J. Allen Hynek, who did Project Blue Book. This is a man who is close to everybody who's anybody in terms of the great minds in the government, not everybody, but like a, he, he gets close to generals and researchers. He He's interviewed witnesses. He's the gift to humankind in terms of just like objective researchers. And he's incredibly objective. Sometimes I think he's too objective if that, if that can be a yeah. thing, but that's his thing. And so if he wasn't that way, then we wouldn't have his insights either. So this is a man who, he's an entrepreneur. He is a computer scientist. And he, in the early 2000s, he co-founded a venture capital firm in Silicon Valley. Uh, He's worked as a member of the Scientific Advisory Board for Bigelow Aerospace. we talked about Bigelow a bit. He's also worked on Pentagon's like declassified UFO program known as ATIP. He is a authority in the field of UFOs. And you might be asking yourself, what on earth are we going to learn from a book that was written in 1979? Well, a a fair amount. (laughs) (laughs) So in the beginning of the book, he breaks down this definition. It's almost like such a good definition of UFOs in a way that it's like his thesis for, for this idea. Messengers of deception, right? What he's claiming is that there's a, Just a complete deceptive nature to alien beings and UFOs. And so his thesis is almost so good, we could just like pack up and go home right now. But I will read it to you and we will not be packing up. Uh We will not be going home. So he says that UFOs are extremely important to contemporary civilization because irrational forces are an integral part of the nature of man. I like that. Irrational forces his sort of thesis of the book, and I think it's really good to just mention this because it will kind of direct the conversation. He says he believes that UFOs are a machinery of mass manipulation. Um, They aim at diverting attention from some human problems and providing a release for other tensions that we have. And contactees are part of this machinery. They ultimately, and this ties into when we covered like this new cosmic religion in Diana Pasolka's book, American Cosmic, it's, a, you know, he, he has this idea that they help create a new form of belief. And Jack Vallee works with Diane uh, Pasulka, right? So it, it's kind of perfect in that way because he, he came up with these ideas, these conclusions a long time ago that he says that, you know, belief in UFOs is part of like a new belief system that where millions of people, they, they get to realize an age old dream, which is like salvation from above. Which I think you have even said those very words salvation from above, surrender to the greater power of the wise navigators of the cosmos. He believes UFOs are real, right? But he believes they're an application of psychotronic technology. Now, that's a word that didn't mean a whole lot to me before I dug into this. In other words, Psychotronic Psychotronic? technology. I think it's a Soviet term, but basically, the way he defines it initially is that they're physical devices, right? That are used to affect human consciousness, but they may not be from outer space. In fact, he does not believe at this point that they're from outer space. Maybe he's evolved his thinking, but not quite. Kiel had this same conclusion. That they may in fact be terrestrial-based manipulating devices. Their purpose is to achieve social changes on the planet, and they use methods of deception. Systematic manipulation of witnesses and contactees mm-hmm. through various sects and cults. They, they kind of spread out the idea of these space messages, and that's it's sort of like just plants all these seeds in our society through what could be non-local devices of some kind. This could be just like a box in some dude's hand, some shadow being's hand in like his <laughs> master cave. It's sort of for me. It's I don't want to say like cringy, but it's it's even difficult for me to take in his skepticism because I guess part of me doesn't believe that it's all uh holographic.
1: That's what I was gonna say. Like, how could it? A hundred percent of the sightings and weird things that have occurred be holographic or interversal is that kind of what he's getting at that it's like in our universe but just at a different time that's
0: that's actually a very good insight he's saying it's not from another planet right but right it could be from another time it could be from another dimension he doesn't say that exactly but Those are the conclusions that we have kind of come up with in the past. And these are ideas that we've talked about. Here's some of the crazy reasons, not crazy, but some of the interesting things he points out initially for why he doesn't believe they're physical things. And this goes against the Roswell episode. The Roswell episode is literally a military officer who's saying, I had a file cabinet full of this technology. We changed the world with this technology. You're telling me it's non-physical, but... There's something physical about it, but then at the same time, remember the conclusion of the Roswell episode. One of his conclusions was that they were basically genetically engineered time traveling biological robots. That sounds insane, but it, it makes sense if you heard our, if you listen to our first episode of the season that were never meant to come out into our atmosphere, which is why they choked and died on our atmosphere. So, we were kind of getting the sense that the Roswell craft was a time traveling device. Mm
1: -hmm. And I'll speak
0: more to that later, but Jax has some very uncool ideas about how they're non physical crafts. You know, because these opinions that they weren't physical, these were not popular opinions. Nobody wanted to look at the fact that it was, that it had ties to folklore witchcraft. We we discussed the folklore aspect in terms of the Mothman, black magic. Uh, we've discussed a little bit about how Bigfoot might be related to this phenomenon. Nobody wants any part of that.
1: But also elves and fairies that was like in. Pasco exactly. Elves,
0: yeah. little beings figure into the Betty and Barney Hill story, mm-hmm. but his reasons why they're not physical. He says there's too many sightings. There's too many real sightings. In other words, If you're looking at, let's say, at this point in time, he had researched 2,000 cases of close encounters on Earth, all around the Earth, let's say, uh, for the past 20 years that were legit. In fact, he's saying that, listen, most sightings take place between 6 p.m. and 10.30 p.m. Remember that John Keel had pointed out that it was like 10 or 10.30 was when on like a freaking Wednesday. Don't take a walk with your dog at 1030 yeah. in the middle of a park on a Wednesday unless unless you want to <sighs> party with alien.
1: Be gobbled up.
0: Gobbly gooked up. See, we, we feed into <laughs> this idea of wanting this cosmic religion because I think a lot of us are like, yeah, dude, like I want to go out on a Wednesday at 1030. Like, let's remember that shit. Let's not forget that. Um, apparently, the sightings decrease after 1030 p.m. There's few reports after 6 a.m., the reason he gives behind this is that most people go to bed around 10 30. So there's no point. The aliens are like, there's no point in us showing up. Why? Because it's not that they're accidentally showing up. According to him, they're showing up on purpose. They want people to see them. And then, you know, there, it's kind of like a design for its effect. He says that if you multiply the 2000 cases in 20 years by 15, um, you get 30,000, if 30,000 in 20 years represents only one of 10 cases that let's say actually get reported, then he says, you're looking at just, just roll with the math here. Cause, cause you know, just roll, <laughs> roll with the, with the Valley math. Uh, I'm sure it made sense to him. So, it, so just follow me here. So if it's third, let's say it's 30,000 cases in 20 years, right? He estimates that are, that are actually reported. Um, that means that if only one in ten cases gets reported, you might have something like three hundred thousand cases on the conservative side over the past twenty years. And he's just like, "Oh no!" He he calculates somehow that it's no fewer than three million in two decades. Basically, the reason I'm spewing these numbers that make zero sense, and I'm not going to go back and figure out exactly, <laughs> you know, it may it may that's how, kind of how he lays it out. It's a lot of sightings for vehicles from some other world to get trapped here. I mean, even if we're not talking about vehicles that need fuel, even if we're not talking about, you know, the same like a propulsion system, it's kind of like an insane amount of experiences that aren't so random. And like, why? Why are they just having this goofy clown relationship with us all the time? Maybe it's not random, he says. Maybe it's to show them off, to get a reaction, to cause social change. He discusses also the physical properties of UFOs. He says this stuff doesn't resemble physical vehicles. And these little examples are consistent with a lot of reports. June 1962 in Verona, Italy. Following a UFO sighting, a woman wakes up feeling like an intense cold. Suddenly, she sees a bald head near her house. She calls other witnesses, and they all see this bald head apparition shrink and vanish on the spot. She says, it was like a TV image when the TV set is turned off. So it's just like, zoop, October 1963. Mm.
1: Was it just a bald head or the... or the
0: <laughs> was, was there a <laughs> hairy no chest just- <laughs> and a set of testicles attached to it? <laughs> No, I think it was just a bald head, oh, man. Geez. October nineteen sixty three. What? Have you ever seen a disembodied head on your front lawn?
1: <laughs> but I'm picturing just the scalp, like just the bald head, like not even a, like a an entire face, just just the part that the hat sits on. <laughs> I'm, I'm like, picturing.
0: What? I don't think he I had a hat. It was a bald head. Because then, because then they wouldn't know his head was bald. No, I'm picturing his face.
1: No, I'm saying that's the only part that you saw was like the part of the head where a hat would sit. That's the only thing she saw. There was nothing attached to it, because you said it was just a bald head. It wasn't a bald-headed man. It was just a bald head. Correct. <laughs> Do you see the difference? How fucking cool is that? <laughs> so how would she you know it was a, a bald head and not like I don't know, like a like a perfectly spherical mound of
0: a flesh jello? I don't know. <laughs> it was know, just like- a flesh mound. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think I'm picturing like his face. I'm picturing his little funny alien face. Like just like. Nah, 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 nah.
1: He has no face. It's just a bald head.
0: Oh, well, you're right. It doesn't say face. It doesn't say face.
1: Doesn't say face. Doesn't say man. Doesn't say body.
0: He's just like. Nah, nah, nah,
1: nah, nah, nah. It's like Humpty Dumpty. It's just like an egg that. I'm like, picturing Dan
0: Aykroyd in uh, Coneheads. Coneheads. There you go. <laughs> Love that movie. Okay. October uh-huh. 1963. Whidbey Island in Washington State. A middle-aged woman, she sees a strange craft with three figures inside. It tilted partially and then sank into the ground. It grew in size, and then it was gone in a flash. The spacecraft, they're not disappearing. They're not like zooming away. They're just kind of like fading away. He says like the Cheshire Cat. I think the Cheshire Cat is like a really cool image because it's like trippy and like strange, you know, it's strange. And sometimes they leave behind a whitish cloud. Sometimes it can produce an exploding sound or it's silent. It just enters the ground or the water. You know, some of the military reports, they they think that they have bases underwater, but they kind of just disappear without a sound or anything. You know, they kind of just zap out of.
1: Right. They don't even make a splash.
0: Or maybe they control our reality. You know, if it's a video game, imagine what an NPC thinks is happening Aww. in a video game. Like they probably think God is crazy in, in, a, in a game if they think anything, <laughs> like in Free Guy
1: or Wreck It Ralph. <laughs>
0: That's a cool movie. I never saw the sequel actually. So he, he compares this to a holographic projection. And he says that some witnesses are not reporting a craft, they're reporting a light, a massive, multicolored, intense, pulsating light. Okay. So here is, here is my insight here. Like I was thinking like, how crazy would it be if like alien beings, they never had to come back to our time to visit us. Like, let's say they created us, right? Let's say they created us. They, they found, you know, the monkey that they were going to mold us from and they messed with the genetics and they created a being that was just so far advanced in terms of what it could do compared to any other animal and on this planet at that time. But let's say they never left the planet. What if like the beings that we have, they manipulate time so seamlessly that they could create us in a moment, they could flip through our history and see how things play out like in a simulation and they could time travel here from what uh, the point of our origin. So maybe they're time traveling from the point of our origin, like they're here in pre-human history times, you know? Or they could be in any time. Hmm. If you can manipulate time, you don't have to travel from another planet. But then how many of them are there? You know, for me, I think that it's cool. Could that cuz I think listen, every every new book or episode when we cover new ideas we're adding ideas to the to the mix right and so i it's not about getting the ultimate answer right we're not going to get the ultimate answer but it's adding more cool ideas to the mix i think the idea of a psychotronic device is really interesting i think that gives a good name to what we're dealing with and helps us picture the laser pointer idea in, in more of an articulate fashion but I don't think it rules out the possibility that they're from somewhere else or like a different dimension. There's just so much mischief with this phenomenon that I get it, but I just feel like the answer could be a lot more complicated than like Jal Valley by trying to say, none of it's physical, like none of it there, none of them are spacecraft. Like he's kind of,
1: It's too limiting. And kind of what you just said, it's making me think, okay, so prior to what you said that Jacques was talking about, um, I was imagining them being sort of humanoid, human types of beings that can just have the power to travel interdimensionally or through time. But now that you were kind of saying maybe they existed before... For our origin like they are a different being that are like they're they control time like they are the time keepers you know like they're and they're not there and that wouldn't and that would explain why they're not physical beings because they're not even like humanoid in a way is that kind of like am i am i yeah i mean it's definitely a
0: possibility i mean they could control our time you know, they can control time as we know it, or they just have some device. Let's say the little rainbow box, the psychotronic device that, you know, it it's capable of manipulating time, and that's no big deal for them. You know, and and Keel often talked about how time would be so different for beings that live a lot longer than us. Like it would just be so,
1: or they don't even live; they just are. True. Like there is no lifespan for them; they're just right. there.
0: You really, you really understand this okay so so let's dive back into it 5 a.m temple oklahoma march 23rd 1966. an instructor in aircraft electronics at Shepard air force base drives to work on route 65. he approaches the intersection on highway 70. one mile before the intersection i saw a very bright light a mile or so above a mile or so to the right, and I suppose it was a truck having trouble on the highway. I went to turn west on Highway 70. I went a quarter of a mile or so, and I changed my mind. I thought it was a house being moved down the highway in the early morning. And Jax asked him, did you seem to be getting closer to it all the time? Yes, sir, it was parked on the highway, and I got within 100 yards of it, and I stopped. I got out of the car. I started trotting toward the object leaving the car lights on and my engine running. I got about 15 steps or so, and I happened to think I had a Kodak on the front seat, A Kodak. I would like to get a picture. I hesitated a second while I did, and this man dressed in military fatigues, which I thought was a master sergeant, this insignia on his right arm with a cap and a bill turned up, he was about like 180 pounds, 5'9". He looked like a plain GI mechanic or crew member. He had a flashlight in his hand, Was kneeling on his right knee his left hand was was touching the fuselage the object that this guy sees looks like an aluminum airliner with no wings or tail no seams along the fuselage he sees it lift vertically for about 50 feet and then head southeast it's not a house backward 10 degrees he estimates it was going about 720 miles an hour later on he was grilled by the military about what he saw so like this this guy, the important thing here of this story is that he's an instructor in airline electronics at Shepherd's Air Force base. And then he sees someone that looks like a GI crew mechanic. He goes into this he goes into some stories about the airships of the late 1800s. His his thesis here is kind of that they're not extraterrestrial, they're created in the brain of the witnesses. He's, he says that maybe they're created by remote stimulation of the visual cortex, and he uses this to explain that that might be why Betty and Barney Hill vary on the details of what they saw. July 23rd, 1947, Pitango, Brazil. A group of surveyors saw a dish shaped craft land near them. One of them, Joe, one of them, Jose G. Higgins sees three beings in shiny clothes, translucent suits emerge from a saucer. They were two meters tall. They had oversized bald heads, huge round eyes with Ah. no eyelashes or eyebrows, and a metal box on their backs. They drew the solar system for the benefit of the witness, and they pointed to Uranus as if to indicate they came from there. Little did (laughs) Jose know they were joking.
1: Can we call it Uranus, Uranus. please?
0: (laughs) We can. We can. 1952, a man named Truman Bethram meets space beings who claim they're from Clarion. You'll recognize this November 2nd, 1966, a salesman named Derenberger sees a dark object while driving home to Parksburg, West Virginia. A man of dark complexion comes out in a blue shirt and blue trousers saying he's from Lanulos.
1: Ah, our good friend Woody and Indrid. Indrid, yeah, Indrid
0: Cold. Good, good. Yeah. So he's, so Valley is kind of pointing out that like they like to, they're not necessarily from space, even if they say they're from space, because they they claim to be from all these fantastical places. Even the Betty and Barney Hill story, he, it's interesting that he believes, he he says clearly, he's like, I do not believe these people are crazy. Like most people believe Betty and Barney Hill. Like they're normal people, they're good people, they have this story to tell, they came up with this due to hypnotic regression, they had similarities in their stories. Something, they encountered something, something intercepted them. September 19th, 1961, Betty and Barney Hill are driving uh, in the White Mountains area of New Hampshire. They see a UFO that looks like a star, they see an object that, Barney stops the car, gets his binoculars, and he sees a large curved window. He sees that the craft looks like a disc. We've covered this story before, but just a recap. Barney stops the car, gets binoculars, and he sees these humanoids looking at him, and he freaks out, and he drives back. He jumps back in the car, drives back. Then they lose all concept of time. When they do hypnotic regression, they both describe a scene where they go on the craft, they see dwarf-like men in black uniforms who take control of them. Um, They're taken in for medical examination. And Betty Hill has shown this star map. This star map became all the rage. Ohio school teacher, Majorie Fish, visited Betty in 1969 to get more information. And she's the one that I think came up with uh, a bunch of possibilities for what the star map could be showing her. And she came up with this uh Z I reticuli theory. And Jax points out again, like I like that he points out that he believes Betty and Barney Hill, but he also says that he's like, I actually believe that this is like a really good researcher. Like Majory did a really good job at kind of identifying these stars. And and her her idea of what Betty Hill saw was a really good guess. But he says that, like, but nobody is taking a look at a couple things. One, from how many positions can we look at the 46 star model and find a match that's as good? Like, if you look at it from different angles, how many other star systems can you identify? Even if we do find a match to the map, like, let's say we find exactly what it is. Like, oh, this is exactly what it is. Why does that mean that they're actually from there and not trying to deceive us? You know, the end goal might be that they're trying to feed us this bogus information that they're from Zedai reticuli, you know, they're slowly and it's working, you know, I would say the sightings from that time period to now have only increased the popular belief in spacecraft from other worlds visiting us. I think most people that are educated in the phenomena know that UFOs are real, but we can't exactly assume what they are. I would like to think that anybody listening to our show doesn't assume that they know where they are. I mean,
1: yeah, that might all be a ruse to, you know, distract the public from what's really going on, just like they do in politics. Yes. What? <laughs> you, you're
0: you're right on the money because he says, like, exposing unsuspecting people to a staged scene is like one of the oldest tricks. In like the intelligence book he points out that in world war ii the british actually changed all their road signs along a route of a german general that they had captured they were driving him to the coast to exchange him for prisoners and they changed all the signage on the roads so that that general could testify to german high command that he had seen tanks trucks barracks in an area where allies were assembling a phantom army ready to strike Northern Europe. So they staged the location for this general they captured just so he would spread the wrong information.
1: Wow. That's pretty intricate.
0: So Jack Feli doesn't believe that Betty and Barney Hill were on a physical saucer. He believes that they were on a non-physical trip controlled and guided by a system that we do not know, a.k.a. the rainbow psychotronic device the rainbow box drugs
1: drugs
0: (laughs) lots of drugs so speaking of drugs there's this really cool story about timothy (laughs) leary that he brings up this this these are the lost timothy leary tapes he jacks valley this is just a small antidote but jack valley goes to mendocino to hear these lost jail tapes of timothy leary where he's discussing his theory of consciousness timothy leary was an American psychologist and writer, and he advocated for psychedelic drugs. See, I think you're, you have like premonition today because you keep mentioning the next thing I'm gonna say, which is amazing.
1: oh <laughs> we're on that wavelength.
0: He was written about in the Kool-Aid acid test. Tim oh. Tom Robbins and Allen Ginsberg referred to him as the hero of the American consciousness. He worked on the Harvard uh, psilocybin project. He was a clinical psychologist at Harvard. He did experiments uh, with LSD, mushrooms, really important kind of figure in the the psychedelic research Hmm. world. So Valet is like in California in this like little room full of like all these little blonde Californians and everybody wants to hear these lost tapes that get played. And Leary states on these tapes, he stated that every living entity has a genetic purpose and that the problem before us now was the future of the human race. He implied that man was fast approaching the end of his rope and that evolution was ready to make a new jump forward into a higher life form. He implied, he said that superior, that a superior intelligence had conceived the blueprint for us on earth. The central nervous system was a gift to us, a piece of equipment to explore and use in order to establish communication with our maker. Pretty cool. Um, hmm. so so this man who did all this research on psychedelics, he believes that like we're approaching this crossroads. And it's up to us to kind of figure out like the human of the the future of the human race. You know, we have these devices, which are which is our central nervous system, if we can tap into them. There are ideas that have been explored a lot. He he had this questionnaire about higher intelligence that was interesting. He said it one. Do you believe that higher intelligence is a useful concept? Two, what is your definition of higher intelligence? And three, what is your definition of intelligence? Hmm. And so you can kind of see that researchers, someone like Timothy Leary, they're starting to pursue at this time and in our time too, like this idea of a higher intelligence, you know? Is is God an extraterrestrial? Are we looking at? Are we communicating with higher intelligences? And what is? What are the implications of that? Uh, Vali kind of sees that you know there's this spiritual void in our society now, and the the idea of this cosmic religion fills that void. And he he believes that it, you know governments can kind of take advantage of this. Maybe disclosure, in and of itself, is now being sort of designed to take advantage of this this feeling that we can you know transcend politics by unifying and meeting aliens and or or fighting you know extraterrestrial threats or whatever it is
1: or at least they would just help us realize that there are bigger problems
0: which i don't think is such a bad thing unless it's used to manipulate us which i think is the whole his whole thesis
1: Honestly, though, I because I was thinking about what is my definition of intelligence, and and to me, parts parts of it are like uh, a deeper understanding of the human want and need, and like what our purposes and like just you know, I always found like old wise people who would always say things, you know, like like they would be judgmental about the people who are always fighting or, you know, as a kid, you like get taught not to like be um, rude to your siblings or like no, violence isn't the right answer, all that kind of stuff. All that stuff is perceived as like wise and intelligent when you're a kid, of course, right? But then you kind of lose that sight as, as an adult. And um, it, it, I guess to me, yeah, is like, is intelligence part of like peace and unity and, and understanding and deeper connection and just like that? there's more out there than just having to like f- fight for what you think is yours. And like that, I want all the money and I need all the things, you know? And it's just like, what, what does, what do all these earthly tangible things really mean in the long run when you're all no longer existing?
0: That's beautiful, Sydney.
1: <laughs> Turned into a really existential thought there at the end.
0: <laughs> so your definition of intelligence would be what if you had to summarize it?
1: I don't know if I can like ver- put it in like one sentence.
0: Let's take Timothy Leary's test. Oh, but you know what's funny? Uh, Jack Valise thought it was in the wrong order. Like he didn't understand why three was not one.
1: I kind of think it, it should be in the opposite order. What is intelligence? What is higher intelligence?
0: So so it is in a, <laughs> it is in a wonky like reverse order because it starts out with, do you believe higher intelligence is a useful concept? What is your definition of higher intelligence? What is your definition of intelligence? Yeah. So we'll do the we'll do the Jack Valley version of Timothy Leary's questionnaire. Definition of intelligence for JV. We'll call him JV from now on. My favorite definition of intelligence has to do with my cat. My cat has always been an intelligence to me. Ever since the day I met her, she completely took down my concept of what a pet was i thought animals were like
1: Mm.
0: not so intelligent i didn't i it's not that i didn't think they were smart because people always refer to dogs and pigs and stuff as being smart and horses but like i just didn't know that they were so in tune with you as a human being like your your mental wavelength like moment to moment so the second i got my cat when she was a kitten, I realized that I was in the presence of something very intelligent. And like it would hide and it would have emotions and it would ask me for things and it would like express itself to me and it would have joy. And it would like go through all of these things where I'm like this, wow, like an intelligence. So definition of intelligence, I'm using it just to kind of base a quick definition would be like to be able to make decisions, to have expression, to Uh, have control over its environment to exercise control over its environment to communicate with others
1: well i think i think a lot of what you said is that intelligence is connected to presence because animals have no you know they they don't have all the distractions that humans have created for themselves like they are just they're ever present beings that's beautiful you know
0: I guess if let's say we're talking about HAL supercomputer, right? In in 2001 a space odyssey, if we're if we're regarding that as intelligence, we're regarding it as something that can make calculations, right? Whether it's on a biological level mm-hmm. or not, whether it's a community of ants calculating whether or not they need to rebuild their home somewhere else or uh attack some something to protect their queen or whatever in terms of what's your definition of a higher intelligence. That's, I think when we're starting to talk about what does that, what does that bring up for you? A higher intelligence.
1: That was like what you were talking about. At least the first thing that comes to mind is like, you know, unlocking the potential of your central nervous system and brain and, you know, the, the, the capacity that it can actually hold. And the fact that, what is it that humans only use like 6% of their brain? (laughs) Um, so higher intelligence would be unlocking that and reaching a fuller potential.
0: Wow. That's so interesting that your, your mind would go there because I wouldn't think, I wouldn't think of humans. (laughs) I wouldn't put humans in the higher intelligence (laughs) circle. Uh, I mean,
1: that's my only comparison. Like, I don't, I don't know. No, but you're right though. I can't picture how.
0: (laughs) You know what? You know, if you're looking at Timothy Leary's definition of. Like you're basically, you're given the tool, you were given the ultimate tool, which is your nervous system and your consciousness. If you can figure out how to use meditation or astral travel or whatever it is to channel, you know, a much of the direct conveyor belt into the heavens and communicate with, and sit at the table with, with higher life forms, then that power is within you and within us is a superior intelligence. There, there was uh, an idea that I really loved about um, what if all of your future selves, uh, let's say you reincarnate, let's say your highest self that, that it's within this incarnation of this solar system is like your guardian angel. So like you're always kind of with your highest self. You know, people speak of their guardian mm. angel, and, and some people believe the guardian angel is you. Like, and and I'm Ooh. taking that a step further and saying, what if that is your higher intelligence that has evolved and yet is still physically with you, with your spirit body and everything? Interesting. Yeah, I mean, higher intelligence for me speaks of of God. And of like benevolent – no, like a, hopefully benevolent. Like alien
1: – The time, Alien keepers. being.
0: Sure. Like the, the ones that know much more about existence than we do. You know, we're still trying to figure out how to maximize our day from Monday through Friday. You know, how to get more sleep. How to – you know, eat better and call our. our
1: you mean basic human. Call beings? our mother what? more,
0: and you know, clean the cat litter more often, and stop being an asshole. You know, I'm not talking about myself, obviously, but you know, we're we're still really locked into at least you know us mere mortals that have not achieved higher consciousness. We're still sort of locked in the, in the mechanisms of personal success. You know, we're still kind of fighting the news and like wondering why we're not working together more to solve universal or global problems, why we don't have more friends, you know, like, so like a higher being, let's say, does not, a higher intelligence does not need to go there. Maybe they figured that stuff out, maybe their own personal life. Like, not to say that they don't spill their coffee sometimes, these higher intelligences or whatever, but, like, you know, and then they have to go clean it up and it's this whole thing. But (laughs) they have to get their space paper towels. Um,
1: They can't just go back in time.
0: (laughs) They just, like, rewind the clock. Maybe as a civilization, they're more connected. They've got the whole social order thing down. And they're, you know, I guess the highest form, maybe perhaps one of the highest forms of higher intelligence would be that you're, you're figured your own stuff out. You're not selfish. And now you're capable of influencing others and helping others. So maybe that goes into the number one and we'll move on now, but like, maybe that goes into number one. Do you believe higher intelligence is a useful concept? I would say that it's a useful concept. Yes, I do believe it's a useful concept. It's very useful to me personally. But I think its usefulness is directly tied to this responsibility, this love that a higher intelligence would have for its fellow beings, you know, to pull beings out of ignorance, blindness, to protect them. What do you think? Yeah. Do you think it's a useful concept?
1: I like I like that. Like, like, well, I definitely think it's a useful concept because if we could actually learn from our mistakes and... And not let history repeat itself, like we would be in so much better of a place than we are now as a society. And that's probably what's keeping us from a higher intelligence. But if we know that it, that it could potentially be achievable, um, maybe we could shift, you know, the mind's eye of, of what is important in life.
0: That's so true, and you know what? Uh, once again, that ties directly into Vali's like next idea, which is that if you could, if we had a base definition for higher intelligence, maybe we could define this stuff better. You know, like a very scientific sort of take on it. Anyway, Vali poses the question: Does it matter if UFOs are real? And then he says, Does it matter if Jesus Christ had superpowers? Does it matter if he has superpowers? You know. Because the effect of the belief in Jesus, the impact that his doctrine and his teachings and the stories of his life and death, the social and historical impact is beyond question. You know The impact that UFOs have had is beyond question. Okay, so if the sightings are real, what is going on? Because it's, it's probably not space beings. So visiting a group of musicians who are coming home Uh, They're in the middle of the night, back from Lompoc to Los Angeles. It's the summer of 68. And this is Helen's story.
1: We left our last performance on the weekend. We probably packed up the gear by 2.15 AM. We must've been on the road for half an hour to 45 minutes. At that point, we were on a flat stretch of land, out on the hills, a white light moved up and began to come in our direction. An airplane couldn't have turned the way it did, so I figured it was a helicopter. Then it began to do erratic things and twists, go very far out, come closer very quickly.
0: Hello, I'm Jack Valet. How did you react to all of this? What did the others see?
1: All four of us were very aware of it. We talked a lot about it, but nobody said let's hide or anything like that. George and Barbara were up front. Uh, George was driving. I was in the back behind him and Dave was to my right. Dave and Barbara were afraid of it, but George and I were encouraging the whole thing. We enjoyed it.
0: What did the objects do?
1: It came up over the car in front of us, maybe 100, 200 feet above the ground, and it was I would say about six lanes of the freeway in width. It was white, it showed a very beautiful kind of glow. I seem to remember the whole, some kind of windows, but I I couldn't really be sure. It didn't make any noise. The thing was like big, four white lights, funnel-shaped, extended from the perimeter of the vehicle and down around each of our bodies.
0: She shuddered as if it was still above her as big as a restaurant. What kind of feeling did you have then?
1: I remember leaving my body on the seat of the car and being about three or four feet out of the car. All four of us did the same thing, off we went. At that point I don't really remember anything else, until fairly recently I didn't think there was anything else, but then I began to realize that something might have happened. Because the next thing I remember I was coming back into the car, I looked around and I saw the light shimmer around Barbara and Dave and we were slowly dissipated back into our bodies. What happened in the car? The vehicle stayed with us at the time and began to move off a little bit in the distance, going on its own… velocity. That was the initial experience of it.
0: Okay. And then under hypnosis, Helen remembers going on board a saucer or quote unquote saucer and observing its propulsion mechanism. She meets a man dressed in white who shows her this amazing motor. Now she is determined to build it. So after this experience, this girl wants to build this alien motor. So Jax checks on the story. He calls George, who is someone else in the car. George hadn't seen her in several years. You know, Jax does, Jacques does his homework, right? He says it was a turning point in his life. You like that course correction there? And he re- he recounts the whole incident vividly in similar terms. And after this sighting, like I said before, Helen feels this incredible deep desire to build a machine based on the principles revealed by the pilot. It becomes her central mission in life. That's your central mission in life. Helen, after this happens, she, you want to build this motor that's based on perpetual motion, which as Jacques Valli says, doesn't make any sense. Um, this most motor doesn't make any sense at all, but this isn't just, there's many stories of people who are introduced to some device. And they just, it's their mission in life to make it. I mean, how crazy is that? Like they show you a mechanism and then you're just like, I have to make this thing. I mean, this is why I said in the beginning of the episode, like if you have an experience like this, don't, don't let yourself be taken by fanaticism and fervor and this passion without being careful with yourself, you know, be careful with yourself because It's our, we're delicate. Sometimes we can be totally taken by our passions, you know, our desires and our desire to escape our life. So Jax believes that Helen's experience was astral travel. He doesn't, once again, like Benny and Barney Hill, he doesn't believe that they physically left um, the car. Well,
1: she said she looked down in the car and saw her body. All the bodies were down in the car, right? Exactly. And he, That's definitely astral. Right. And
0: so she also says that the car kept driving itself, you know? So Mm -hmm. it's disconcerting, you know, this idea that you could travel mentally, that you could literally have your consciousness scooped up in bed or while you're driving or something and taken somewhere. How do you deal with that? Like, how do you explain that? How do you rationalize through that? Well, I think Jack, Ali is on the right track because he's looking at what the effect is. Like, what are they trying to make you do? Like, what, what, why this motor nonsense? Like, are they confusing us? Are they messing with us? What's behind this? And I was thinking, he continues to refer to the psychotronic technology. And I was just thinking, like, what if it's also just like, okay, instead of it being from the time period before we were created and they're just interacting with us now still? So, yeah, I was just thinking, like, what if it's just like, like a Wi-Fi device. It's like literally in another solar system light years away, but they can just mess with us. You know, they can just see us and mess with us and just like, not even, maybe they don't even have to be here. You know, maybe it's that simple for some of them. Um, and I was also thinking I'm playing this immersive sim game. Have you ever heard that term immersive sim?
1: I've heard immersive like games where you get to like make choices.
0: Exactly. That
1: can take you on a different exactly path.
0: Exactly. Right.
1: Is sim like simulation? Yeah,
0: exactly right. So like the Sims, the Dishonored video games, there's a game Weird West. There's a lot of immersive Sims. And the thing is, like, I'm, I'm not very good at them because I'm very new to them. But like, the thing is, people get such a kick out of making different decisions. They love screwing. I
1: get a kick out of They, the get,
0: they get a kick out of screwing <laughs> with the characters perhaps even screwing the characters destroying their their <sighs> past playing tricks on them seeing what happens they literally just get a kick out of seeing what happens lots of kicks so so they' just like mess with the characters and they have a great grand old time and I'm just like you know maybe this just makes sense like this these clown these funny f- being trickster beings like they just love messing with us you know
1: that could be really traumatizing if that's true
0: but it's it's true we enjoy doing that to our game characters so
1: yeah but do we think that our game characters actually like have a soul and exist on a plane not yet (laughs) but what
0: if in the future uh, some Nobel prize winner comes up with this computer formula to make the video game characters alive you know what happens what happens when there are artificial intelligences that are programmed to feel things you know i think that we would like to draw a line ethically but the idea is that we are those game characters and we're doing it to other game characters and it's just like this crazy holographic echo you know this this repeat
1: i think my choices would be highly uh affected by the fact that the game characters were sentient I definitely wouldn't be like, yeah, jump off a cliff. Let's see what happens.
0: Would you jump in there and be like, wait, I am not a god. I am just a human that's playing Red Dead Redemption, and I just, I wish you <laughs> peace, lady. There's a there are bandits I'm
1: controlling all of your coming fates. this
0: way. Would do you think? Have you? I don't know if you've played an immersive sim, but recently or whatever. But like, would you play as the good guy or the bad guy? Would you just terrorize everybody? or would you try to be like a nice person?
1: Well, that's what I'm saying. If if these game characters were sentient, I I wouldn't play as the villain, but the villain's always the fun one to play as because it, you know, games and and books and movies and whatever, they can put you into a world that's not your own and so you just feel kind of like woohoo, I'm going to do whatever I want, all the things I can't do in in my own reality. That's
0: exactly right. And and in the words of someone in a game community that I that I was talking to recently they said to me oh you cuz I told them I was like anytime that I play an immersive sim I said I can't help but be the good guy like I just try to be the hero sometimes I try to make like edgy decisions that reflect my grumpy but heroic nature <laughs> you know but like
1: can wait, can you be the villain who makes good choices and becomes like a, a you know, like redeems himself? You
0: can, but the idea is that there are consequences, you know, but the consequences so far are not like super crazy in games. Like I mean, I think we'll get there and I guess we'll see, depends on the game maybe, but I never play as the guy who behaves like a psycho and kills and does all this crazy <laughs> stuff. But steals Because you do that in steals, real life. Steals, <laughs> right. no. Um I don't need to, uh you know, but but you're right, though, it's a license to just go crazy, right? It's the West world idea that like you just go crazy in the in the in the fabricated world,
1: yeah, no consequences, or there are
0: consequences, but you get to have yeah, a great it. time with them, and they're not consequences in the real world, you know, in the word in the words yeah. of this member of the community, he said that, oh, you haven't played as the villain, then you haven't lived. Ooh. Which was an interesting statement. That's a very intense.
1: What's the point of an immersive sim if you haven't lived?
0: Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I hope that's not what's going on, but it kind of seems that way. It does seem that way. Maybe not on like a micro level all the time. It's not like like we do have free will, but you know Jacques is pointing in the direction of he he's He's pointing out that on a grand social level, historic level, it seems that our decisions and our, our destiny has been shaped by these mysterious beings. And so, okay, so Helen's motor has no function, but, you know, they're altering individual belief systems. And this brings me to his, his example that you want if you want to see a psychotronic device… A good example of one is your TV. And this reminds me of Jim Carrey's Riddler in Batman Forever. Have, have you seen that movie?
1: Yeah, it's been a long time, but I the have. The
0: insanity of that scene where he's like zapping everyone's brain.
1: Mm, mm-hmm. It's like,
0: if you know, that movie is like if Tim Burton were Elton John <laughs> and also had like no, no taste, <laughs> you know, like it's just like. The most insane, wacky. No, <laughs> it's just insane wackiness. And like Jim Carrey's, like in that, in that tight suit. And he's just like yeah. zapping people's brains through their TVs and like stealing their essence through their TV. And it just like, you know, he was pointing out Valley was pointing out that a TV set is a physical device, it has weight, volume, temperature. If you turn it on, it begins to control your awareness, right? You, you Imagine you turn on your TV and you see like a live video feed of a murder happening. Let's say you don't know what it is. Let's say you keep flipping the channel and that's all you see. You could think that maybe this is happening right now. Maybe this is happening. What if it's happening in your house? You're just like really creeped out. You're like, is this real? Is this fake? What's happening? It can really mess with your awareness. And it could all be, you know, it's like a Hollywood production stage. Like if you didn't know better, you know, if you gave a TV to like a caveman and they saw like some crazy stuff on there, you know, they would, they would think they were under attack. You know, they would think there were people in the TV. It would, it would completely shift their reality. So he points out that the TVs influence what we do also. And that's true. I mean. Uh, now it's the internet also, but I mean, they, TV influences what toothpaste you buy. Like, you know, I buy a brand that yeah. I recognize it, 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 influence, it could influence who you sleep with based on who you see, what, what you define as attractive, how you vote, you know, what you think of as a nice car or a nice computer or whatever it is. Um, nice clothes, you know, it, it influences us all the time. It's kind of its whole idea, actually, that it influences us. It's used.
1: Especially recently, I think this is really important because of all the isolation that we've been through over the past couple of years with the pandemic. Like it, it just all we had was TV and our own like, you know, distractions that formed our opinions of what reality was, even though we weren't necessarily out in it for a hot second.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, and it just continues to do so. Yeah, I guess more so during the pandemic, right? Like we were, we just became a lot more insular watching more YouTube videos, more, more movies, more things, you know, streaming just exploded with the pandemic and just movies and content. And, but it's its whole idea, right? It was founded on advertising. Advertising always paid for our entertainment, right? So the commercials Mm -hmm. on YouTube pay for YouTube.
1: It can be subconscious too. Like it can just play on repeat and you're not really paying attention, but then you, you know, it will, it will base the choices that you make in terms of, you know, product purchasing and stuff without even knowing.
0: (laughs) Completely. Okay. So we're going to go into two more stories. This one is my favorite. Probably these two, these two are my favorite takeaways from this, from this set of ideas, also known as a book. So this is this is probably my favorite takeaway, and it reminds me so much of the day after Roswell. So this is Jacques Vallée, probably his best takeaway from writing this book, is when he got to tell the world about Major Murphy, and he he credits Major Murphy with changing his trajectory with the UFO phenomenon changing the way he saw it. I mean, up up until meeting Murphy, he was very much a scientist who believed that science had all the answers to the UFO phenomenon. Now he believes, now as in, in 1979 when he wrote this book, um, he believes that if science can provide part of the truths of UFOs, he says he doesn't believe it can shed light on the whole truth anymore. And the reason he doesn't believe science can Explain every aspect of the UFO phenomenon anymore is because of an encounter he has with a Major Murphy. Um, this is somebody who has a much higher rank than Major. Uh, Major Murphy is a retired US intelligence officer. He saw action in World War II, very much like Corso in Day After Roswell in Italy. And this Major Murphy saw a lot of action in World War II in Italy. Invest just like Corso. He investigates the Caribbean, uh, where he organizes efforts to intercept submarines and German spies on their way into the US. Um, he meets this Major Murphy at a gathering of UFO contactees, where Veli asks him if he wants to go out for a drink. And while they're having that drink, Jacques Tells the major that he's surprised that the major would be interested in talking to contactees and in the event that they were occupied with. He tells him, like, like a total goth boy, Jock just says, like a total science goth boy, he just says, like emo boy, he just says that he thinks it's a waste of time. He's like, I, you know, it's just a complete waste of time. And then the major responds, Why don't you clarify that statement for me?
1: Well, these people know nothing of science. They are not... scientists.
0: What makes you think that UFOs are a scientific problem?
1: Well, it cannot even be a scientific problem if it's not approached in a scientific way. And it should be approached in a scientific way if you want it to be taken seriously. No, no.
0: You got it all wrong. Science is limited science has rules. For it to be studied by science, you'd have to assume the UFOs are natural in origin, rather than artificial, and possibly biased. What if the UFO phenomenon could be controlled by alien beings? If it is, then the study of it doesn't belong in science. It belongs in intelligence, meaning counter-espionage, which as a matter of fact is my domain. Now in the field of counter-espionage, the rules are totally different. He draws a simple diagram in my notebook. You are a scientist. In science, there's no concept of the price of information. Suppose I gave you 95% of the data concerning the UFO phenomenon. You're happy because you know 95% of the phenomenon. Not true in intelligence. If I give, if I get 95% of the data, I know that this is the cheap part of the information. I still need the other 5%, but I know that I would have to pay a higher price for that 5%. See, Hitler had 95% of the info about Normandy, but he had the wrong 95%.
1: Are you saying the UFO data we use to compile stats and find patterns with are useless?
0: It depends on how the other side thinks. If they know what they're doing, there may be so many cutouts and holdouts between you and them that you won't have the slightest chance of tracing your way back to the truth. Not by following sightings, throwing those sightings and their information into your computer. They will feed the information to you that they want you to process what if the only source of information on the UFO phenomenon is the aliens themselves?
1: If you are right, then what can I do? I might as well dump my computer into a river.
0: Not necessarily, but maybe try a different approach. You should work entirely outside the organized UFO groups. They are infiltrated by the same official agencies they are trying to influence, and they propagate any rumor anyone wants to have circulated. In intelligence circles, people like that are historical necessities. We refer to them as, quote unquote, useful idiots. Now, second, look at the irrational, bizarre element that those elements that don't fit. Those are significant. So this reminds me of what we were saying about the fact that in recent years, you've started to have researchers look at Bigfoot's relationship to UFOs because it sounds ridiculous when you say that out loud, but but because the stories are connected, you'll have sightings of these creatures, these hairy humanoids, and you'll have UFO sightings. You'll have Mothman and you'll have UFOs, right? Mothman was surprising when we covered that material because... There were so many men in black, so many stories of UFOs in that book. And I wasn't expecting that. I was expecting just like, you know, an old fashioned creature from the Black Lagoon with (laughs) butterfly wings, you know? So I I like this conversation and it has a huge impact on Jacques Vallee's life because he says that it's just so different than what he was thinking. He was seeing it as intelligence now. And, and the coy nature of intelligence and how that's treated we got we got a bit of that with the day after Roswell because we got to insight into how The information about UFOs itself is used in a very cat-and-mouse fashion with the the Russians at that time and 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 stuff like that because because if anybody had their hands on that technology that could change the course of human history you know that could change everything so you know, that there's even a point later in this book where where the major he talks to the major again. The major's like, listen, like, we didn't recover the best information from World War II when it comes to the Germans' technology, like the Russians did. So we we may have knowledge that they were making flying saucers, but what if the Russians found more of that technology and have advanced it? And I was like, dude, how insane. Would it be (laughs) if the Russians were responsible for, like, UFO sightings and stuff? Like, here we are. always
1: blame the Russians.
0: Right. Like, you know, but, you know, I I don't think that's, like, it doesn't seem, still doesn't seem possible that human beings are responsible for all of these things now or they ever were. But at this point, I think that a lot of us in this world believe that technology is catching up so some of those crafts could be our government another government some of these experiments like we we discussed um Rendlesham Forest how that could have been some sort of military experiment uh if you remember that story about those officers in that forest on that base in England how they saw a giant eye in the sky and there was like all these weird sightings and you know, there are some conclusions that that could have been a military experiment. You know, one of these psychotronic devices used on people or some sort of a psychedelic agent or something. I don't think this book is, I think every book we need to get what we can from it. And I think this book has a lot of useful challenges to the physical nuts and bolts theory. And Kiel does the same where it's like, well, there's so many crafts, there's so many Beings, they're tiny, they're big, they're blonde, they're small, they're messing with us, they're telling us they're our gods. Like, there's so many, they're healing us, they're hurting us. You know, there's so many different versions of all this. And let's not completely buy into the fact that they're from outer space. I think that we, because we have the advantage of reading into this knowledge way later than this, where now, like, we've seen the non physical and the physical theories. I, I I see it as like it could be a number of explanations behind this. There could be physical beings. There could be people that are just using these devices or using technology. There could be breakaway civilizations that have technology that we don't know
1: on Earth. Is that what you're suggesting? Yeah,
0: like it could be as simple as like not simple. The Russians. <laughs> yeah, or like some Bond villain, you know, that that has way too much technology on his hands that he inherited from his great. Grandfather. I want to, I want to end the show with a bit of a story, a, like one of the coolest stories that I've read recently in the UFO phenomenon. It has to do with a Jacques Bordas.
1: Not Jack Valley.
0: This is a different Jacques, right? This is the other Jacques who, who runs into alien Lord Farqua and Fabio. I like that, even though he's sort of he's the his thesis is about how they're not from outer space. He's not saying they're not crafts. He's not saying it's not technology. He's just saying they they don't seem like they're from outer space. So he's still breaking down that the contactees. There's there's a there's a couple of things that could happen to a contactee. It ends in a, a number of different ways, and some people who are contacted by the UFO phenomenon become crazy like they lose their mind they're unable to function in society again they go off chasing Mm -hmm. ships or aliens or they just they just are they become completely unable to go back to their lives and second some slide into silent contemplation and others like our friend Jacques Bordas they reach a physical and mental state which sets them apart from the human race. Yes. Superpowers.
1: I want to be a Jacques Bordas. I
0: know. I think everybody wants that kind of an experience. Nobody wants their skin burning or to get cancer from a UFO or anything like that. Or probed on
1: a Wednesday.
0: Yeah, probed on a Wednesday. Jacques Bordas was born July 20th, 1911. He grew up a weakling. So, he was like a weak man, a weak boy. He wasn't like super strong or healthy. And this boy has several encounters with extraordinary beings that totally transformed his Hmm. life. Antonio Ribera, a gifted Spanish writer who knew him for many years, later said of this quote-unquote weakling that he still has muscles of steel. He takes long walks through the mountains of Andorra, where he lives in a magnificent villa among the pine trees. He skis down the slopes, sleeps three or four hours a day. His body requires no more sleep. He spends a large part of the night standing naked and motionless as if recharging his batteries in a shower of invisible rays.
1: Wait, this is Jacques or this is Anthony? This
0: is Jacques Bordas. This is Antonio. And Anthony
1: knows this no. about him. No,
0: or, sorry, Antonio, Antonio Ribera is a writer that knew him later in his mm. life. So oh, that gives okay, you okay. a sense of kind of the life. This is a life-changing. Ex- he has life-changing experiences with alien beings that changed his life in an amazing he m- way. He
1: might have unlocked his higher intelligence, Maybe, as we say.
0: So, until the age of 12, Bordas was very sick indeed. He had a hormonal deficiency. He was enormously overweight and could only walk with difficulty. His mind was closed. After
1: being like a a skinny little runt, he became overweight? Oh, no.
0: I never said he was a skinny runt. Did I say he was skinny? Oh, I thought you said said he he was was, weak. I I don't know. I said he was weak, not skinny.
1: I guess that made me picture him being like skinny. No, he
0: was a big... (laughs) little runt
1: he was a big weak man
0: <laughs> yeah uh he was very big he had he walked with difficulty he had a hormonal deficiency he i like that it says his mind was closed neither public schools of barcelona nor the private professors could uh get his interest then bordas uh, went underwent a strange transformation at 12 on august 1923 as the boy was lying down He felt the urge to climb to the terrace where he saw something. Was it a dream? Or He saw some metallic triangular devices similar to miniature planes. Three of them land near him. They're like less than nine feet. And one of them opens like a fan. A being comes out wearing a white suit and a bright white mantle. This man is not taller than the boy. And he says, We have come to see you because we have taken you under our protection. We know how much you suffer. We know your dream of becoming a strong man, an athlete. You will realize it with our help. You will be strong, not physically, not only physically, but mentally too. Now that we have adopted you, we will never forsake you. In the future, we will come back to you again. In the meantime, as a token of friendship, take Take this. this. The strange messenger gives him a dark square candy and instructs him to eat it completely, warning him that he was beginning a new life by doing so. This being goes back, little alien Lord Farquaad, goes back to his triangular airplane and took off. And then the other two little planes take off too. Little crafts. They flew towards the Tibidaro mountain. When the boy wakes up, he's got this taste of tar in his mouth.
1: Also, he ate the candy willingly.
0: Okay. So listen to the life that this man has after this moment, right? During the next four years, he undergoes an extraordinary transformation, and he becomes like a strong man. Um, At the same time, he gets his fascination for mountains and for science. At 18, he runs away with two friends and joins a circus. Bordaz uh, becomes an expert mountain climber. He was the first Spaniard to climb Green Needle in 1934, and in 1937, he crossed the Grand Jura and ascended Grand Chervas. Chavaz. Um, And I, you know, I think I incorrectly said that he was French uh, when I referred to him earlier in the episode, but he's from Spain and we'll, we'll see how he ends up in France and speaks French. So a short time before the Spanish civil war, he passed the examination to become a meteorologist in charge of the Turo weather observatory on top of Montseny. He came out first out of many applicants to go work on this mountain Um, During this period where he's working on this mountain at this observatory, he remembers a knock in his isolated cabin. He gets up. He opens the door. The area is deserted. He takes out his gun and searches every corner of the rocks. He doesn't find anyone. He goes back inside. A few minutes later, something scratches at the window. He gets up, and this time he sees a human form. It was standing on a narrow ledge above a sheer drop of a thousand feet the shape Mm. walked away towards the abyss instead of falling down it just keeps going horizontally like it's on some invisible see
1: now that's giving me like ghosty vibes
0: strange yeah this second messenger vanishes in the distance so it like scratches at the window it's like saying hi but then it's very creepy and weird and just like walking off into the distance. The civil war forces uh, Jacques to go back to Spain as an air force officer. This is a crazy life. This man leads as the political structure, the economy of the country collapse. He takes the side of the nationalists and becomes a leader of that group and seeks refuge in the mountains. He gets tracked down, arrested, tortured, and thrown on a prison ship, which he manages to escape. He formally joins the ranks of the nationalists, but then soon comes in conflict with his superiors because he disapproved of the summary way in which the red prisoners were tried and massacred. So how crazy is that? Like he, yeah. he doesn't agree with the way they're treating the prisoners, so his commanding officers decide out of him. Well, no, they decide to kidnap him. They send three men to kidnap him. Uh, well, one officer it says, s- says that it, he sent three men to kidnap him. In a classic gangster style, they take him to an isolated cabin. They order him to take his clothes off, and they shoot him. Jeez. Somehow he survives the execution. We can only nice. really speculate at this point how he could have survived, but his would-be killers become convinced that they're facing a supernatural power.
1: Mm-hmm. They run
0: away in terror and Jacques picks up his clothes and walks out.
1: <laughs> Casually.
0: Just like, yeah. Uh, Antonio Ribera met this extraordinary man at a time when he had enemies on both political sides. The Reds had thrown Bordas into jail because he resisted the terrorist movement and the nationalists tried to kill him because it disproved of their summary trials and cruel executions. Ribera's father who was a Romanian consul in Barcelona, helped Bordas escape to France. He became the manager of a small hotel in Castiel, uh, a village on Vernet Mountain at the foot of Canigu. He was there in 1951, dividing his time between his activities and as an official mountain guide and manager of the hotel. And this is when he comes in contact for the third time with a force that has influenced his life. And Jacques says Jacques Valet says that it's the irrational inexplicable projection of another intelligence. So Jacques uh Bordas Bordas I guess it would be he's resting in a patio when an unknown man comes before him and gravely salutes him. This third messenger is over 6 feet tall. He has an athletic body, clear blue eyes, and long blonde hair. He wears black boots, close-fitting trousers, and a gray garment with ropes around the necks and wrists. His eyes were slightly elongated. His eyes were elongated, and his hands were very white. And so, I would like to beg of you a favor. Can you get me every day? At the same time, two bottles of milk and some bread. They agree on a time and a place and the man comes back every day, never saying anything until Jacques asks him where he comes from.
1: Where are you from? Where you come from?
0: From above. Jacques thinks he means the mountain. He looks out at the desolate range. He thought maybe he was a German on the run, hiding in the mountains. Later on, they have a more lengthy conversation full of so much math, Jock did not understand half of it.
1: What are you doing in these mountains?
0: I am doing a study of the topography of the Kanugu.
1: Can you show me what you do?
0: I will bring you something tomorrow. The next day, he brings a strange parchment with a map of the mountain drawn in the finest detail. It's also covered in unknown symbols. The next days, the conversations take a political turn. As I was saying, a man must tear away his egotism. Man believes he is unable to do this, but he can, although it's very hard. Man believes he is the only important being on earth. He ignores the fact that he is nothing more than one element in natural evolution. In spite of his unbounded pride, his so-called knowledge, there is another species evolving now that will replace him in due time. Even your children are undergoing a transformation. They will change everything. The social structure, the religion. The last day, the visitor tells Jacques, Tomorrow I must go back there, and since I do not have any of your currency, I will pay for your milk and bread with something your people will appreciate.
1: Ah, forget it. You've already repaid me with all you've taught me.
0: No, take Take these these rocks. rocks. This is gold from the Cuddy River. It will repay you here's the last part of this story. Jacques Vallée, who we, we described as someone who does his homework and also befriends anybody he can that he believes is might be telling the truth or even not. I mean, he, he really makes these relationships. He's a researcher. So these are not stories by somebody that's comfy in their home, not going out there and meeting people. I mean, um, this is somebody who is firsthand asking this guy. He goes and finds this guy. First, he goes to Barcelona to meet Antonio Ribera, the Spanish writer. And he asks Ribera, He's like, you know, I'd like to meet Jacques Bordas. Like, I really would. And um, and you know, he tells him he's toying with the idea of going on to Andorra. He wants to meet Bordas in person and 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 the researcher Antonio says, You will not have to go that far. He is spending several weeks right now in the city. You can talk to him tomorrow. When he meets Bordas uh, Valley in in the 70s, Bordas is 65 at this point in time. He's a strong man who doesn't look over 50. He gives this impression of intense vitality. He says his education is very limited, but his knowledge of business is keen. His understanding of nature is exceptional says he understands the mountains the topography he knows exact you know he understands like the environment unlike anybody else they spend most of their time however discussing the being of the kanugu and his subsequent contacts so he kind of valet sees his story as very substantial like he like again he's not discrediting the story or the visits he just he's just questioning that they're from another planet
1: did he say anything that like he felt with his interview with Bordas that he was like speaking to an ethereal being? I mean, just based on the story and the history behind him, it's like he's not even really a human being anymore. He's kind of on another level, it seems.
0: Right, he's got this higher being qualities. Um, thanks to that little black candy that he ate, or who knows what, you know, some, some <laughs>
1: Thanks Lord Farquaad. Some
0: process, right? You know, watch out. Three little triangular crafts could change your life, you know? Why do the lottery? Stop playing the lottery and start going out into the fields at <laughs> 1030 on a Wednesday.
1: Yeah, exactly. See if you can <laughs> interact
0: with little Lord Farquaad. So, I mean, he, he he says that the guy is impressive. Like, he's strong. He looks, he looks like he's in amazing shape. There's even a photograph of him in the book. He says his, even though his education is limited, he's super smart. I mean, ballet is super smart. So he's saying this guy knows so much about nature. He knows so much about business. Um, and then he interviews him. He, he interviews him about this. He asks him, when was your last communication experience? Oh, and it's it's cool because he talks about the strange being. Well, in French, it's le terrain strange, like the strange being. I don't know how you would say that mm. in French, but it sounds cool in French. Um, so he asks him, "When? when is your last communication experience? He says, only a few weeks ago. He says it was in the house in Andorra. The room appeared to fill with red light particles and he's like, I went into a trance. I heard a voice telling me that soon I would be needed. How do they identify themselves? Do they say where they come from? He says they say they're from Titan. He says quietly. For some reason... Valet says, unlike the way Valet normally is, he says, I was beginning to really trust this guy. He's like, mm-hmm. even though I couldn't buy into his theories, I just really trusted him. Like, I had a feeling like yeah. he was really telling me the truth. Perhaps you know that many people in America, both North and South, have made claims similar to yours, Jacks. valet says. Only the communications are never consistent. Do you trust the source of these messages, he asks him. They could well be saying this because it's something I understand, Bordas says. I have no proof that it's true. Besides, there are Luciferian forces out there. So at this point, Jack Vallee rolls his eyes in his mind, probably, or maybe, maybe not in his mind, maybe in his head. He becomes concerned that he's about to tell, give him like this treatise on evil and good and. You know Yeah, um, give
1: him the religion speech. Yeah, that,
0: exactly. Yeah. Something he's heard a lot before. And Jack Valley says, Do you mean that there are different kinds of manifestations, like some dedicated to evil and some to good? And Borda surprises him. And he says that no, I, I do not mean that, Borda says, to his considerable surprise. Those are simply forces of a different type, which we are not able to comprehend. When we have evolved sufficiently, we will realize that the contradiction was only an apparent one. So in a way, I think he's saying that good and evil, they're just forces, but they originate from like a similar sort of polarity of energy. Yeah. That it's not like, it's not black and white. It's refreshing to Jacques Vallée that even though this man has had his life changed for the good, he is super like down to earth. Like he doesn't, he doesn't necessarily see them as angels he's not interpreting them through religion he's not saying they're devils either he's saying that you know they manipulate energy and he's has a relationship he's with them he's seen them for what they yeah, are he, yeah he has a relationship with them they're intelligent they say what they say they say they're from titan you know um, but he doesn't know and he doesn't really seem that concerned (laughs) about it you know yeah there's no way he can prove it
1: it's just funny i think the reason that jacques is so impressed by it is because humans have this like they they really just need to find an explanation for anything Mm. and and so because of the fact that he doesn't have an explanation and he doesn't really he's not looking for one he's just like this is what it is and this is what happened i think he's really impressed by that and maybe that does come from his lack of not lack of intelligence, obviously, but lack of, uh, you know, schooling and and information uh, that was available to him the way that it is to, you know, like a, a first world society or people who are just constantly surrounded by information, you know, that our opinions can be shaped based on the things that we hear and see, like we've kind of been talking about. And he's been unaffected in that way, luckily. <laughs>
0: it's like when you meet somebody who's super down to earth They're not like super elitist or college educated or like you're like you were saying, like, but they're but they're so
1: they're in tune, but they're
0: honest and they're they're in tune with truth and honesty and they see things in a really refreshing way. I think you're right about Bordaz like he he has experience and he's just honest like this happens to him. It's happened to him, but he's not a fanatic and he's not i think what you were saying is true because i think when you're super educated quote unquote you can so easily echo other people's ideas because right. you're exposed to them all the time so you're just you're just repeating other people's fancy ideas instead of your own and so he says with jack bordaz he finds something new a man whose life had been bent out of shape at an early age by the apparent intervention of another life form and he's adopted by this alien force. He's touched by another energy. and then he came realization, rationalizations, the attempts at explanation. The early incident could have been a dream. It's not unusual for obesity to give way to normal development. Like like you can just kind of rationalize like that that like all right, he just kind of changed yeah. and had this incredible life, but some some hormonal deficiency could have been corrected when he reached a certain age. But it's intriguing, you know, not only was the being of uh, Kanugu did not only did it impress other people that saw it, including the mayor, there are, there are witnesses to this story and, and he corroborates the evidence. So Jack researches and finds the hotel he confirms that he lived in this hotel by this mountain he confirms other elements of bordaz's life he speaks to the mayor of the town who apparently saw this being come down oh. from the mountains and they the son bordaz's son tries to take a picture of the being and it oh. comes out blank and yet all the other pictures around that time are totally fine when the mayor confronts the stranger and demands to see his papers like he just gets fed up, and is just like, mm-hmm. "We need to figure out who this person is." The tall being is said to have looked at him in such a way that he became confused about <laughs> the question.
1: Wow, did this? You said this happened around the time that uh, you that that Jacques was first exposed as a kid, or that this happened later?
0: No, this was around the Kanugu when the being came down for bread and milk. So, Vali kind of sees in. In, he sees this vacuum, this void that the cosmic religion, if we can say, kind of fills. He sees this narrative. He kind of blames the UFO community, the researchers, like the people behind Project Blue Book, the government, for it's their fault that like it it has turned into this cosmic religion mm. thing. Instead of instead of researching it, instead of scientists taking it seriously and being like, we're researching this, we're trying to figure this out, then by denying it and hiding it, it has become this huge thing where people, you know, it's all about the conspiracy of the government. Even though we've kind of been discovering through military sources and writers that it's really just because they don't know what else to do and they have to yeah. hide what they know because they don't want another government finding out. And really they don't know as much as we, they should know, you know, if they're still compartmentalizing all the information. And, and so it's, it's just crazy. And, and I think people, I think people get tired of their lives. They get tired of playing what Valley calls yeah. the human game and they want, some sort of a cosmic game to play in, you know? I I know I know that that's appealing to me, you know, to be a player in the cosmic realm is is seems way more important and it gives you way more purpose than simply being kinder to the people in your life or being more disciplined right. or whatever, you know? We want to be we want to be swept up. You know, I think the spiritual vacuum demands to be filled because um, like you saying, like like you said earlier, like materialism and everything has its limits. Like where we just kind of hit a wall, and we want we we probably know that there is this whole other side of our brain and of existence itself that's not being fulfilled, that's not being activated. So that's pretty much where we're going uh, with this episode. There's more to this great book that um, that we can cover in the future. So you know, messengers of deception. Is, is heavy emphasis on the deception. Um, but I think we've brought home some really good points. And uh, <laughs> if I do say so myself, no, but like, I think we've, I think we've had some good conversations about these ideas. It's funny in the book, he, he goes into this, like, goes on this wild goose chase with the followers of Melchizedek, like this occult being that these occultists uh, are all about. And he like, goes deep inside, like, a couple cults. He goes deep inside a couple cults, and it's just, like, funny, because, like, the things that they say... Like, at one point, there are these two... I don't know if they're Californian, but these two, like, younger people, youngish people, like, then they're in their 40s, this couple, like, this man and this woman who create this whole cult around the fact that they're alien beings, and they say that you know that they want to save the world and they they say they had normal lives just like you and like they, they start these conferences and like people start following them they say that basically they're they've risen to this high and in, highly intelligent place and that their bodies cannot be killed and they predict they prophesy that they're going to be killed at some point in two years when when jack meets them and that their bodies will be resurrected and that never happens And like later on, he finds out that they were complete scam artists. Like they were both, they both tried to create a bunch of meditation centers together and that didn't work out. And so, you know, I think the phenomenon is ripe with con artists and people. Are also
1: messengers of deception, if you will.
0: (laughs) Thank you for dining with us. Hold those cosmic appetites for next time.
1: Reach out to us on Twitter and follow us on Instagram at Cosmic Feast.